Welcome to episode two of Spectrum at LBS. In today's episode, we have Sasha, an LBS MBA 2021, to talk about his thoughts on climate change.、Uh, what are the scope of this problem?、Um, what are the ways we could help to mitigate this issue, avoid the disaster, and our thoughts on Bill Gates' latest book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Without further ado, let me introduce you. Sasha. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to Spectrum at LBS. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for having me on.、Um, I really look forward to the opportunity. My name is Sasha Rizokozitsky.、Uh, I'm an LBS MBA 2021,、uh, originally from the U.S. Uh, before uh, LBS, I was in political risk consulting,、uh, where I focused、uh, at the beginning on India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Bangladesh,、um, giving kind of forecasts on political developments for a mixture of institutional investors and large corporates. And then I also got a chance to work on some global scenario planning for 2030、uh, for a large development foundation, and some other projects、uh, with a global nature. And、uh, through that work,、uh, I was able to—I was exposed to some of the slightly longer-term forecasts that are out there、uh, around climate change、uh, and climate action, and it didn't look good.、Uh, and and that, that's really stuck with me in the years since,、uh, as I've tried to become a bit more active in. Working on climate-related issues, and not always with success. I was actually、uh, with an oil company、uh, as my part of my consulting internship this fall. But you know, it, life goes on. You mentioned that the outlook isn't great. Could you walk us through what exactly is the scope of the problem we are looking at? Yeah,、uh, every couple of years, the IPCC, the International it's called Panel on Climate Change, comes out with a new report. And the one I remember reading was 2018.、Uh, I wrote a piece about it at the time, actually.、Uh, and what it looked at was the outlook for keeping、uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius、uh, versus pre-industrial levels around the 1850s、uh, by the end of this, I believe, the end of the century. Um, which is which is sort of the the aspirational goal for the 2015 Paris Climate Change Agreement, which targeted two degrees of warming warming by the end of the century, but like ideally 1.5. And、uh, that 2018 report showed that 1.5 is like a pipe dream. The chances that we hit 1.5 are pretty low. <laughs> like we're already at one. By the way, we've already warmed one、uh, one degree Celsius on average since the 1850s or so.、Um, And the question is, when will it hit 1.5? And obviously, there's a range of probabilistic forecasts out there, but worst case, I think we're looking about 20. Sorry, IPCC 2018 says looks like we're going to hit 1.5 by about 2040,、uh, and then two degrees by maybe 2060, 2070.、Uh, and there was a study more recently. Arguing that there's literally only a five percent chance that we'll be able to limit warming just to two degrees Celsius,、um, so it, it's not looking great.、Uh, not looking great right now.、Um, now that doesn't mean that the the battle is necessarily lost, but it does mean、uh, that we need to think real hard、uh, about what the world looks like in terms of you know, politics, economics, and society, including business,、um, in 
in a pretty high warming scenario. Um, this humanity will survive, whether or not uh, society is currently organized uh, can survive is, I think, honestly in question when we start looking towards the end of the century. To help us understand better of the magnitude of this uh, catastrophe, could you give some example of what are the likely outcomes when we hit 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius? Yeah, uh, so the IPCC report 2018 looked at the difference between a 1.5 degrees Celsius and a 2 degrees Celsius, and I believe that was by the end of the century, though I could be wrong. Um, and remember, current forecasts have that happening much, much earlier than the end of the century. Uh, but it was hundreds of millions of people uh, exposed to um, episodes of extreme heat waves. Um the possibility, much higher probabilities of devastating droughts around the world, particularly in the Mediterranean uh, and Sahel, uh, African Sahel uh, region. Um, and then in a two degree scenario, it was looking at about 18% of insects, 16% of plants, and 8% of vertebrates would lose half their geographic range. Um, about half that in a 1.5 degree scenario. So what that really tells us is that, you know, while the harms do not scale linearly uh, with the amount of warming that we experience. Um, so that means that every, every tick up in temperature has disproportionate harm uh, around the world uh, to, to the environment uh, and, and to the, 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 the planet's ability to sustain life the, the way it has. Um, for the last, you know, several thousand years, uh, at least, you know, there's also a lot of concern about sea level rise. Um, and, you know, these are even, I, I would argue, even even sort of more uncertain, uh, right, because uh, the degree of warming does not necessarily directly correlate to a certain melt rate. In fact, we found that the Arctic is, they found that the Arctic is warming dramatically faster than most of the rest of the world, if not the entire rest of the world. So there are some articles about there about, you know, projecting that, you know, pretty much everywhere uh, around sea level would disappear uh, potentially by by 2100. And, and by that, we mean Florida, Bangladesh, Thailand, Vietnam and, and a whole bunch of other area areas. So that's that's Dhaka. That's Bangkok. Uh, Jakarta is already sinking. Um, enormous, enormous potential harms uh, around the world just from sea level rise alone. Um, we talked about heat uh, heat waves, but you know there's also a greater possibility of other extreme weather events, be they flash floods, uh, be they you know deeply unseasonable freezing, uh, as has recently been seen in Texas. How much of that in, is directly involved in climate change and not is something for PhDs much smarter than myself to debate. Uh, but the overall argument is that uh, weather gets harsher, <laughs> harsher in the extremes, uh, and more unpredictable uh, as the world warms. And there is a migration issue as a result of climate change as well. Bill Gates mentioned in his book that by the end of 2100, the number of refugees seeking asylum in uh, the EU is likely to increase by 28%. And uh, as a result of reduction in agricultural production in Mexico, uh, 2% to 10% of Mexican adults are likely to try to cross border into the United States. 
Um, what do you think of that, Sasha? Migration has the potential um, if it's large uh, and if it's relatively concentrated to result in some some pretty disturbing uh, political and economic changes. Uh, when when you think about it, control over borders is is one of the kind of fundamental uh, aspects of what makes a country a country. Um, and of course, there are significant political debates as to the extent to which uh, borders should be enforced uh, in, in various ways and in, in various geographies. But there is no doubt that a mass migration uh, and what we're looking at over the course of the century will be greater in scale than the world has ever seen uh, would probably result uh, in some pretty harsh and arguably inhuman outcomes in many cases. And I think the, the, the mass migration that we've seen most recently, right, a couple of million Syrians fleeing a devastating civil war that some argue was actually propelled by drought, propelled itself in part by climate change, um, really helped transform the politics of Europe. You know, without millions of Syrian refugees over the course of a co just a couple of years in the 2010s, would Brexit have seen the support that it had? Open question. Um, would EU politics have taken uh, the, the turn uh, that they have where, where you see the, 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 the shift to the right in terms of immigration rhetoric in the EU has been pretty noticeable over the last couple of years? Uh, the entire political spectrum has been pushed uh, to a more restrictionist outlook. Uh, due to do that change. Um, and that was just, you know, a million or two people. Uh, and the human suffering has been enormous. You know, there's still problems. <laughs> the camps, the camps in Greece are not empty, are, are still there. Uh, the camps in Turkey are still there. This is not a result issue, right? Uh, but if you scale that up, uh, that, that extent of migration, one really has to wonder what, what the political outcomes uh, could be. And and in very few scenarios, or do they look very pretty? We know that a climate change-induced disaster is coming. Um, but the question is, what can we do as a human being to avert the disaster? What do you think of that? Well, the actions are, are pretty obvious, and uh, that we need to dramatically reduce the amount of greenhouse gases, be they methane, CO2, or others, that are being pumped out into the atmosphere every year, reducing them ideally to zero, uh, potentially to negative, um, by mid-century. Now, the, that, that part is obvious. The question is, can we get there, and what would we need to do to get there? What we would need to do <laughs> to get there is a pretty fundamental rethink of how economic life is lived in the world. Uh, because modern human existence uh, and the modern economy fundamentally runs on the burning of fossil fuels uh, of various kinds, be they coal, be they oil, be they natural gas, um, and the emissions of surprising amount of methane from various sources uh, as well. Changing that, requires changing some pretty pretty fundamental economic structures. Uh, and it will require an enormous amount of money uh, of investment, both public and private. It will require uh, societal changes in consumption patterns, uh, in purchasing habits. Uh, it will require a wholesale change to infrastructure. Um, and that will be extremely expensive. 
these changes, disruptive and expensive. And the question is, how do you do that? <laughs> where does the money come from? And more importantly, where does the political will uh, come from? Because as much as, you know, various name brand companies talk about achieving carbon neutrality by end date or X date, um, every company everywhere in the world needs to do the same. And they simply won't uh, absent some sort of regulatory mandate. Uh, and that's hard. Uh, no government wants to impose something like that. Or they talk about it. Yeah, it's easy for you know a government in the UK to have a, a 2050 carbon neutrality target with no details, mind you, when that same government you know will, certainly will not be around uh, come the 2050s, right? It, it, these are these are easy things to to announce and but exceptionally hard to realize and, and implement. Uh, China has done the same with a 2060 target, again with precious little detail. Um, being criticized in the FT today, actually. It's good that these targets are there. We, probably, we would not have seen these uh, countries making these kinds of pronouncements even 10 years ago. But now the question is how to realize that. Uh, and it's, I don't think anyone has a good answer to that uh, at the moment. We, we, we know what needs to be done, but we have no idea uh, how, <laughs> when, and even whether uh, the needful will be done. It seems that us human beings are never really good at collective actions. I wanted to uh, switch topic for a little bit and talk about COVID. As a result of um, global lockdown, our greenhouse gas emission fell by 6 to 7%, uh, which is clearly a good sign. Do you think this trend is going to continue? And uh, do you take this as an optimistic signal that maybe we could work together to fight against uh, be it COVID or climate change uh, for the betterment of human beings as a whole. Oh, certainly. So while it is correct that COVID-related lockdowns reduced global emissions substantially, global emissions have already uh, recovered uh, to pre-COVID levels. Uh, a. Uh, B. Uh, if it takes... Uh, and in, you know, a, a global shutdown of economic and social life to achieve the emission cuts required. Will those emission cuts ever be realized? The answer is no, right? No one, no one will accept that. I would not accept that. Um, no one would want it, and no one should accept that, uh, right? Um, well, that's clearly not the answer. So the question is, can we have some semblance of regular social and economic life uh, but at net zero emissions. Well, that will require an enormous amount of investments, right? Um, and that's easier in some places than others if you throw money at the problem, right? Um, diesel trains can be electrified. You have to get rid of the engines and, and swap them out and run some wires. This will cost money, uh, but it's entirely doable, right? India is transitioning, it's been a very slow transition, but it's transitioning 100% of its railways to electric uh, over there in the, in the coming years. Um, they started rolling out electric trains quite some time ago. Most trains in the U.S. are not electric. Um, different places have... So that is doable. It's a question of money um, and time. Fine. Shipping. Shipping is tough. How, how do you electrify a ship? There are some electric ships out there. They're not big, and they don't go very far very fast. Um, same with aircraft, right? This is difficult. This is very difficult. The energy density of oil is incredibly high. 
it's effectively a, an amazing store of energy. It is a battery. It is a way to transport, uh, easily transport and store energy. Um, batteries have nowhere near the energy density of oil, and they probably never will. Uh, so how do you, overcoming that uh, is, is so, so it's a combination of a technological problem where much of, but not all of the technologies required uh, exist. Uh, but then deploying those technologies is going to cost an enormous amount of money. Uh, electric trains have been around for a very long time. We could electrify, it is theoretically possible to electrify every train on earth. Where is that money going to come from? <laughs> it is theoretically possible with today's cars to have electric car mandates and electrify every car on earth, even trucks. It is possible. It's possible with today's technology. That technology is going to improve. Great. But flipping that switch is incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive. We can do it. So even when we have the technology, it's a question of will that new technology be deployed and be deployed at scale? And the answer is not very fast, <laughs> if at all. And, and then there's the questions of we don't even have the technology required to, to achieve uh, net zero emissions in, in certain sectors uh, that are very important. I think no one wants to go back to you know, having to take a ship for seven to 10 days between the UK and, and, and the US when you can fly there in six hours. Wow, that's some very bleak pictures that you've painted for our listeners here. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on Bill Gates' book again. In the book that he mentioned that to avoid a climate disaster, there are several ways. And some of them are inventing technologies that don't currently exist, as well as closing the green premium by funding the R&D of existing technologies and make it cheaper. Do you think that there is a silver lining to all of this and there's still a way that we could um, figure out how to avoid the disaster altogether? Yeah, so Gates is pretty realistic. Uh, and then he says that, you know, quote, there is no possibility of getting rid of fossil fuels in 10 years. That's anti-reality as much as denying that there is such a thing as a climate crisis. That's a fact, right? We're not going to get rid of fossil fuels in 10 years. I, I, that's, that's inconceivable. Can we get rid of them in... 15, 20, it's, it's honestly just as inconceivable. And that's really the problem, right? So Gates argues that we need uh, to first bridge that technology gap, right? Invent the technologies that, that don't currently exist. Um, and, and he's been funding a number of startups uh, looking and doing that, focused on those R&D questions. Uh, but then he also argues that it's really important to improve existing technologies to reduce their cost, what he calls the green premium, right? The, the gap between how we do things now, the, how much that costs, and how we could do things in a carbon neutral way and how much that costs. And as long as doing things in a carbon neutral way costs more than doing things the way we do them now, there's no really incentive to change, right? Um, or at the very least change will be incredibly slow, um, which is true. Uh, but I would argue that we need to do more than that because, you know, uh, well, it's great that Gates is funding R&D, and he calls for you know pretty substantial public investment uh, worldwide in that R&D. Fantastic. Um, but let's think about other things that could also help reduce that so-called green premium. And the first one that comes to mind, the most obvious, is some form of carbon tax. Because what you do is, what a carbon tax would fundamentally do is increase the cost of doing things the way we do them now, right? Reducing that gap potentially even making that gap negative to 
ways of doing new ways of doing things that already exist, right? Uh, that allow economic life to continue in a carbon neutral way. We should not have diesel trains <laughs> in this day and age. This is not a technological problem. This is an investment problem, right? Uh, that's the most obvious. Uh, we should probably not have new ga uh, gas burning cars. Um, and I know a number of countries have put in that mandate through 2030. Again, the implementation path is a little questionable. Unclear to me if those will actually happen, but the, the intent is there in a number of particularly European countries to ban the sale of new uh, gasoline-powered vehicles post-2030 or 2035, depending on the country. Fantastic. Um, can we speed that up? Um, so that's, that's a, like a straight-up mandate. Um, but I would argue incentives work better uh, than mandates. Um, we should not have, uh, in this day and age, coal-fired power plants. And we should probably be phasing out gas. Uh, what we need is dramatic investment in renewables. The renewable technology is there. It's been there for quite some time. It, obviously, it gets better uh, over time as it scales and there are various improvements. Uh, but with the solar panels we have now and the offshore wind turbines we have now uh, and the battery solutions that we have now, uh, the percentage of clean energy in grids could be dramatically higher than it is now. Could it be 100% with today's technology? Probably not. We don't have good enough storage. But... <laughs> It could be a heck of a lot higher than it is now. And again, that just requires an enormous amount of money and either some sort of government, man, either government funding, some government mandate that says you just can't have coal power plants anymore, so you have to build solar panels, uh, and or a carbon tax that suddenly makes power from coal extremely expensive and makes power from solar cheaper. And in that context, no one will, no one will naturally, no one will invest in coal anymore. You're starting to see that happen. It's been very slow. A carbon tax would speed it up. However, implementing a carbon tax is incredibly difficult because it would need to be global. And it's, you, know, you can't get a global agreement on anything, much less taxes. No one likes those. Um, I certainly don't. Um, and neither do French drivers, by the way, uh, the, the, with the yellow vest protests a couple of years ago uh, that, that hamstrung a price hike on gasoline, which is in itself a sort of form of carbon tax, sort of a limited one. Because if one country has a heavy carbon tax, anything that produces carbon will just be moved to the other country. <laughs> and that stuff will be imported back at a much cheaper rate. Uh, and businesses in the carbon taxing country will take a hit. Uh, so that country would then have to impose, and the EU is talking about this, by the way, some form of carbon tariff on imported goods from places that don't have carbon taxes or as high of carbon taxes. Well, then you should have massive protectionism, which makes everyone in the world worse off uh, economically. So there's a there's a the, the politics of this is incredibly difficult. And that's why we don't have much progress on carbon taxes, despite, you know, uh, uh, despite technocratically that being the most elegant solution to our current problem. OK, Sasha, I have my final question here. After all we've discussed here, what would you say for people like you and I? can do to help to um, mitigate the climate change issue and uh, help to save the planet going forward? Yeah. Um, so I think the real answer is, so there's, a, there's actually a strong debate uh, that I've read about uh, in, in the sort of climate world about this, where some people argue that the idea that the question of, that bringing down climate action to the individual level is, in their view, disingenuous. Uh, because it shifts the burden of action to the individual versus, say, the government or the large corporation. Uh, and in their view, 
um, that that burden shifting is a way of letting those other entities off the hook when in fact it's large companies and large governments that can have a dramatically orders of magnitude bigger impact than the consumption decisions of, of you and I. Uh, but the real answer is is that it requires both individual action uh, and action by larger uh, and more complex and more powerful entities. Uh, and these two things cannot be separated uh, because uh, a country, uh, a democratic country anyway, uh, full of voters who deeply care about climate change uh, is a country that is going to implement climate-friendly policies, be they renewable energy mandates, carbon taxes, uh, R&D subsidies for clean energy, what have you, that actions that need to be taken. Uh, businesses are also, surprise, surprise, responsive to their customers. <laughs> uh, and if customers are actually willing to pay a little bit more, right, for a carbon neutral or at least less carbon solution, uh, then businesses will happily give customers what they want, right? And that, that customer willingness to pay reduces that green premium that Bill Gates talks about, right? Uh, so if, you know, companies talk about, you know, for instance, carbon offsets, right? Planting some trees. I don't I believe people have done the numbers and we can never plant enough trees to, to get ourselves out of this problem, but uh, more trees are still better than less trees. Um, so planting some trees, you know, for every flight that you take. And like airlines offer this now, right? When you go to book, like you want to pay this extra and we'll offset the carbon. So certain businesses are doing that. that. That raises their costs and ultimately gets passed on to the customers of those businesses. But if those customers are willing to pay, you know, businesses will do it. Um, so you, so that will have an, uh, an effect. Um, flying less or buying offsets for it could have an action, although a, it's like it's small single digits of global emissions are caused by aviation every year. It's actually pretty small. Um, but that, that push was actually before COVID started to be seen in Europe where people were taking fewer short haul flights uh, in favor of uh, trains, which in Europe are almost all electric. Um, something that uh, the climate activists over there have been very vocal about that could help but you know i'm calling in right now from sri lanka uh, i flew here i'm not going to take a boat take too way too long uh i love traveling i know everyone at obs loves traveling as well uh and travel will pick right back up again as, as soon as we're able to um with, with some vaccines and hopefully the reduction of, of the of the pandemic uh so Will I travel less uh, because of climate change? Probably not. Will I feel bad about it? Yeah. Um, once I have a job, would I hit that buy the offset button? Maybe, but not now. Well, thank you, Sasha, for coming to our show. It was a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much.